reminders as you guys are finishing your conversations and making your way back to your seat, because y'all are doing that right now. Uh, just a couple of reminders uh, as we go in. First of all, text to pastor line. Um, if you uh, if you came in late, if you came in late, um, who's got the number? Who's got the number? Who can who can shout it out for us? All right. If y'all don't have it, I think I got it. Yeah. What's what's text pastor? Six seven eight. Nine five one. Nine zero four one. Save that in your phone. Text me any questions you have uh, after this session. We're gonna take a quick, another quick break, and then uh, we're gonna do a little uh, Q and A. Uh, any questions you have throughout the night, you can you can uh, converse with John. I also want to just uh, give you all a couple of little heads up. So of course the Covenant Institute. Well, this is a Covenant Institute class. We got a couple of courses last week. Uh, the Glovers and the Yousef launched the Nearly and Newly course. If you are about to get married, if you just got married, it's a great course. Abby Rogers, who, uh, um, is Abby here tonight? She, not able to make it. Too many parenting responsibilities, but she launched the Women of the Word course um, on January 29th. Jeremy Brooks. Is Jeremy here tonight? Jeremy? Uh, Jeremy and I are going to be teaching through the doctrines of Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's on Wednesday nights. Um, uh, we will meet in this room or in this building on Wednesday nights. Um, we've got, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants, understanding today's issues through yesterday's saints starting in February. We've got an, a course on evangelism in February, uh, a course on post-modernity in March and April. Uh, this summer, Will Kinds is going to be here giving a lecture on, um, some of the Psalms, um, in the Old Testament. Al Moeller is going to be here in the fall. Uh, lecturing is a part of the Covenant Institute. So we got a lot of things upcoming in Covenant Institute world. Just check the webpage um, under events. All those should be listed. Um, and we'd love for you to just take advantage of some of those opportunities that we have just to really hopefully give you guys some extra training. I got a couple more uh, giveaways here tonight. I do want to say if you register for the conference, if you just showed up tonight, if you just showed up tonight thinking like, oh, man, it's free conference. I'll just show up. We're glad you're here, but I can't guarantee that you get the free book. But for those of you who registered, we have a book waiting for you, John's book waiting for you on the way out tonight. So thanks for registering. A uh, free gift to you. A lot of what John is talking about available on the table over there. Um, also, um, uh, tomorrow morning, another little announcement. Tomorrow morning, 7.30 a.m., corporate prayer gathering. So a time to put all of this into practice Lasts about 30 minutes, maybe just a little longer, but 7.30 to 8 or 8.05 or 8.10. But tomorrow morning, right up here, I'll be here. Uh, would love to see some of y'all. One other little thing, one other little announcement, and I'm going to let John get back to it. The Rhythms Guide, okay? I hope you guys, if you're not using this, it's a great tool for your personal devotion time. One of the things, one of the little tools that we put in this is a psalm of the day. Does anybody use the psalm of the day? Anybody, even if you don't use it, there's good. Anybody use that? And, and, and just is incredibly helpful uh, for your prayer life. Um, and we don't even make you do the math anymore. You can just have it right there. Um, we've picked it out for you. So it's a really simple way um, to pray. Uh, so anyway, 
Um, John, I'm going to let you get back to it. Can we just give John a hand as he comes back up again, thanking him for all he's doing for us? All right. Uh, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. And it says this. um, Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell down to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that you would help us as we come to approach Uh, your word, help us to see it with fresh eyes. Um, I pray that you would help us to have large, or you would enlarge in our hearts that we would have just a greater capacity to receive grace from you this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A great philosopher once said, um, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. The philosopher, you guessed it, Mike Tyson. Um, and he said it on the eve of a big fight. Mike Tyson's getting ready to go into this fight. A uh, reporter comes up and says, what are you going to do about this guy? He's big, he's fast and strong. He can move from side to side. He's, he's, uh, he's quick. What are you going to do? How are you going to beat him, Mike? And Mike said, um, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And his point was, uh, everybody thinks that they're stronger than they are. Everybody thinks that they'll be more composed than they are um, until they actually come to adversity. And then they find out that whatever plan that they had flew out the window. Um, And so, metaphorically speaking, uh, five years ago, I got punched in the mouth. I alluded to it. Earlier, uh, six weeks before we were getting ready to plant our church, I was at a conference preparing to speak. Me and uh, my best friend were sitting at dinner with a pastor friend who spoke on First uh, Thessalonians 4, heaven, that morning and was sitting down at a steakhouse and I get a call from my mom, I sent it to voicemail, 
I get another call from my mom. I send it back to voicemail. I get a call from my sister. And so by the time I go out and make the phone calls and find out what went on, uh, I found out my older brother, who was 32 years old at the time, a pastor, had three kids, five, three, and one um, at the time, that he uh, went to sleep in his car and he didn't wake up. And uh, what I quickly found out was uh, all the things that I thought I believed uh, about God and his goodness, the things that I had preached for years, um, just flew out the window. And any words that I said about the goodness of God just felt hollow. C.S. Lewis, in a book called A Grief Observed, writes and reflects on the death of his wife. Um, and what he says is that uh, what we find out in times like these is that uh, the temple that we thought was our house of faith was nothing more than a house of cards. And that's what it felt like. It felt like it just crumbled. And so the question that I have for you is, um, what are you going to do when you get punched in the mouth? Because I, I just want you to know um, you will. And I don't say it to make you sad. I think I'd make it to, or I say it to make us all sober, right? Some of us uh, will live life fighting the battles that the author of Ecclesiastes did. I have everything that I want and I'm still sad, right? So some of us are going to have to wrestle with the idols of prosperity, but that's not all of us. All of us will have to wrestle with the tornadoes of adversity. When those tidal waves come in, I'm telling you, nobody feels like an Olympic swimmer. Everybody does all that they can to barely stay afloat. And so I think and I feel that um, instead of daydreaming about what we hope God will do for us one day, I think one of the best things that we can do is to prepare for that very, very certain day that will come um, quicker than you think, and it'll feel different than you think. We have this uncanny ability to um, imagine with great detail things that may never happen. So people picture their wedding day, birth of their children, the job of their dreams. And we can see those things in great detail, but they may not take place. But the things that are inevitable are often the most unimaginable. And where does the strength come from to deal with those things? And I think that's where we find ourselves here in Matthew um, Chapter 14, uh, Jesus has already taught on prayer, and I think the context of this little pericope or section is key, all right? This story of him praying right here is sandwiched in between the Last Supper and the betrayal, right? And so what you have here is that the Last Supper, Jesus basically gives the disciples an invitation to be weak. He tells them, 
I'm going to die. You all are going to run and scatter. But he doesn't say it as an indictment. He says it as an indicative. This will take place, but I'm going to raise from the dead and I'm going to bring you all all back. Right. What an amazing picture that we have a God who sees our future failures and he's not disillusioned by them the way that you and I are. And he gives them this invitation to be weak. But do you know what you get? Uh, Peter, James, and John don't return the RSVP. So Peter, James, and John all profess how strong they are. Peter says, no, no, no. Jesus, you can keep your prayers. I've got my resolve. I'll die for you. James and John in Mark 10, as Christ is on his way uh, to Jerusalem, They say, Jesus, do you mind if we ride shotgun when you get into the kingdom? And he says, you don't know what you're asking. And so here's what Jesus will do. He's done explaining prayer. Right? That uh, when it comes to the definition of the word hot, a red stove is going to do a better job than any dictionary can. When it comes to the power of prayer, Jesus practicing is going to do a better job than any sermon will. So Jesus takes them into the garden. And it's best if we just think of this in three parts. Think of this last thing as like painting a wall, right? The first thing that you want to do in a room. Matthew 14 um, yeah, it's best to think of this like, like we're going to paint a room, right? The first step is you want to prime the walls and just get things ready. Then you want to, you know, put the paint on the wall and then you want to, you know, stand back and look at your work. And that's what this is like here. The very first thing is the primer. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to tell them or show them um, you're not as strong as you think that you are. Matthew or Mark 14, it starts on this. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane. The name is important. That name literally means olive press. So the oil that comes from olives that were used to anoint uh, kings, sacrifices, things like that, that precious oil only came from the olive after a time of intense pressure. And Jesus is getting ready to lead them into this garden in this time of intense pressure. And one thing that he will show them is, you know, everything that feels bad to you is not bad for you. So he's going to lead them into the place and look who he takes. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, right? Uh, Why did he just take these three with him? I think he takes these three because if you go back, these are the three that professed their strength. They thought of themselves as a different class of disciple. And Jesus just wants them to see, no, no, listen, hey, you're the same as everybody else. Yeah, yeah, when my daughter came back from the hospital, like I said, she was four pounds. And uh, when she came into the door, my nephew was in the house at the time. His name is Jackson. He was two years old when she came in. So she comes in and he sits down and he looks at her 
And he doesn't speak in his voice, but he tries to like do baby talk to her, right? And y'all may laugh because you think that it's cute. I thought it was condescending. So I go over to Jackson and I say, um, Jackson, you are in fact a baby. Um, I know you think that you're grown, but your subject verb agreement is always off and you really, and, and so I'm just trying to help him see, Jackson, I know you think you're something different than her, but you're not. You're a baby. You're just as dependent. You're just as weak. Jesus is going to take Peter, James, and John because he's saying, I know that you think you're something else than, than the rest of these 12, but no, 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 listen, you're just like them. You're not as strong as you think that you are. He takes it with them, and, and then he goes on and says this, look. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. One of the things that's good about story is that the narrator can give you insight into the motives of uh, character. So even if the person doesn't share what they feel, the narrator shares what they feel. And that's why this is important. Mark is going to go and talk to us about Jesus being deeply grieved and distressed on the inside. But do you know what you see Jesus starting to do with people that have professed their strength? Jesus, the Son of God, who knows how all of this will end out. He doesn't, like, play this big hero and Superman, but he sits and he shares with them his weakness. He shares with them the frailty that he feels on the inside, which should be a model for all of us who feel like we're any type of leader to anybody else to be reminded that often uh, people are more impacted by the weakness that you share with them than they are with, with the wisdom that you hurl at them from a distance. Jesus says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. He invites them to come in. And I think in so doing, he's really going to give us this key, right? How do we deal? Where does the strength come from to deal with the adversity that will inevitably come our way? I think it comes through prayer. We strengthen our hands for service by surrendering our hearts in prayer. The way that we get strength Total and absolute strength comes from total and absolute surrender. Here's the paint on the wall. He went a little farther, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you still sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? And it seems like for a literal hour, Jesus is praying these same words over and over and over. And while I think the prayer is powerful and we're going to spend time 
on that. I think the most important thing in, in, in this text is uh, the context of prayer, the fact that he prayed more so than just the content. But I feel like that the content of this is so um, helpful in our understanding of prayer that I do want to take time to work through that. And I think prayer and faith is made up of at least two things. And that's this one, confidence in God's ability. And two, contentment with his activity. Confidence in his ability, all things are possible. Contentment with his activity. Not what I will, but what you will. Let's start off with the first one. Confidence. It's a request for help. Look, there is no prayer without a belief that God can do the impossible. Prayer starts asking God for help to do what you can't do. Um, I love the, the Sherlock Holmes novels. Um, and they're written from the perspective of John Watson. John Watson is Sherlock's homeboy who doesn't really do the work. Sherlock does all of the work, but John is more of a historian. So he just writes down what takes place. And there's this one case uh, where somebody comes in, presents a problem, and it's so out of this world. And here's what John says. John says this, uh, so accustomed was I to his invariable success that the very thought of his failure had ceased to enter my mind. What he said was, I spent so much time with Sherlock that whenever anybody brought something crazy in, I didn't wonder if he was going to solve it. I wondered, how's he going to solve this one? And this is what it's like for people that know their God. We've become so accustomed to his invariable success that the very thought of him failing has ceased to enter our minds. All things are possible with God. I had a professor in school that used to say it like this. Uh, what God has done in the past is both a plan and a model of what he will continue to do in the future, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. You and I come into this world and we put God into a box. We have boundaries. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he, you know, heals folks that are blind, folks will say things like, we've never seen anybody heal the blind. When he'll start to raise folks from the dead. We haven't seen folks uh, uh, raise people from the dead. And so as Christ works, people's boundaries of what God can do expand. Jesus being God in the flesh, he had no such boundaries. He knew that God could do the impossible. So as he's praying, God, all things are possible for you. He's praying with, with a real sense of help. I'm confident that God can do it all. But I do want you to hear this. 
although prayer starts with a belief that God can do the impossible, although prayer starts there, peace is never found there. Here's what I mean. Believing that God can do the impossible and measuring his love for you in terms of if he does the impossible for you is the quickest way to discontentment. The quickest way to discontentment is this, holding God hostage to an outcome that he's never promised. It's like waiting in the cold and the rain for a bus that is never coming. So Christ says, first part of the prayer is, God, I know that you can do the impossible. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Whatever you decide to do, I'm content with that. And that's not a way to negate the faith that I exercised in the first part. It's a way to remind myself of where peace is really going to come from. And then how, right? It's not like Jesus goes down, says these 23 words, and pops up and is ready to go to the cross. It seems like for a literal hour, he is praying the same thing over and over and over and over again, which speaks to a persistence that often finds itself in prayer. And I want you to hear this. We tend to think that if I continue to pray for the same thing, that it's a lack of faith. But in the Bible, persistence and praying for the same thing is not a lack of faith. It's a sign of faith. It's you saying that, God, I know you said that you would do this. And unless you do this, it's not going to get done. I don't have anybody else to plead to, so I'm going to continue to go to you. Persistence in prayer is not a lack of faith. It's not doubting God's goodness. It's a sign of faith. It's you saying, God, you are really the only option that I have. Here's why I say that I think the point of this story, hear this, is not just that prayer, the, the, the content, but the whole context of it. What this story does is it compares Jesus's prayerfulness to the disciples' prayerlessness. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. Nobody's chasing them. Right? Yeah, you remember at the start of this, I said this story of prayer in the garden was sandwiched in between their aspiration to stand for God and an actual instance where they could stand for God. This is a sandwich, uh, but it's more like a vegan sandwich. You know, it's surrounded by promise with nothing but sadness and disappointment in the middle. <laughs> what you have is the disciples have a chance to stand for him and they run. Jesus comes into this garden and look here at the end. Look at the, look at how this ends off. 
Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. Look, see, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Look here and don't miss it. Get up. Let's go. My betrayer is near. He doesn't wait for them to come. He tells them, let's go and meet them halfway. You know, sometimes um, answered prayer is confusing, right? You pray to God for things and you're not quite sure. It's like, God, the prompting that I felt, was that you that spoke? Was it the fact that I had pizza at 9 o'clock? And you know when I do that, I get heart, right? We just don't know how God speaks. Do you know what's unmistakable um, about God answering prayers? Providence. How things play out. And Jesus is praying, God, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. If there's any other way, not my will, but yours be done. And he gets up and he looks and he sees a mob with furrowed brows, pitchforks, clubs, and torches. And do you know what he says? I guess God said no. Let's get up. And go and meet them. Because if this is God's will, I am safer running headlong into the fire than I am running for safety elsewhere. And Jesus goes and meets them. This is what I really want y'all to get. Crucifixion to date is still probably one of the most, if not the most, agonizing way to kill somebody. So much so that the Romans wouldn't even practice it on their own citizens. So much so that the way that it was carried out on Jesus, it was only done so for a limited time like that in human history. It can't be compared to the electric chair because the electric chair is done in front of a small audience of people. The person being killed has the option of of being able to have a mask put on their head so that their shame is hidden. Crucifixion was very public with no shame being hit. It was an agonizing way to die. It is the reason why in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, those four Gospels are the ones that you have because all four of those Gospels, each of them give at least a third of their Gospel to the Passion Week. So much so that one author said, in all of the Gospels, it seems as if Jesus' life and ministry could be described as a prelude to the main event, which is his death and resurrection. 
I bring all of that up to say, every gospel writer, as they are describing the agony in Jesus' last week of life, do you know where they describe him agonizing the most? Not on the cross, but in the garden. That's the picture that they paint. After he agonizes on his knees in the garden, do you know what we see of this Jesus? He's lost so much blood being whipped and flogged that he can't even carry his own cross. They have to compel somebody to carry his own cross. But as he sees his mom crying, he looks at his mom and has enough presence of mind to say, Mom, John's going to take care of you. John, would you take, take care of my mom? As he's blindfolded and beaten and flawed, he's kind of spicy and snarky, can still like yeah, take these little jabs at these guys. As he's on the cross with the spear stuck in his side, people, people that he created hurling insults at him, he's praying that God would forgive them. With his last breath, he is reassuring a guilty but repentant criminal that he'll be with him in paradise. And you say, where does that strength come from? Well, he's agonizing on this cross. He seems cool, calm, collected, and driven. And the disciples, according to John 20, are locking themselves in a room with nobody chasing them. What was the difference? The difference was prayer and prayerlessness. If you think that I'm making too much, too big of a deal about this, when you go home, read Acts chapter 3 through Acts 5, and do you know what you'll see? After Jesus dies and raises from the dead, Peter and John, Acts 3, Heal this man that's lame. He's lame. He can't walk. By the time they're done with him, he's given God a standing ovation. They preach the gospel. They're thrown in jail. They start to sing and pray. An angel busts them out of jail. And do you know the first place that they go? To a prayer meeting. And they pray. And do you know the content of that prayer? Acts 4. It's the same outline that Christ played. They start off, sovereign Lord, we know that you can do it all. But then by the end of the time, they're praying not for God to give them this clear path. They're praying, God, give us boldness to be able to do your will. And do you know what? They go back the next day and preach in the same place. They're thrown back in jail. They're let go when they're flogged. And at the end of Acts 5, do you know what they're doing? rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer like their Lord and Savior. What changed? The Holy Spirit of God indwelling them and them 
being led to do the same thing that Jesus, who was filled with the Spirit, did when he was getting ready to face adversity, and that was get on his knees and pray. True strength comes from total surrender. Here's what I want to do in the brief 15 minutes that we have left. I just want to give you six ways that we as a church, you all as a church, can make this a practical reality in your lives. Um, these are things that we've tried to do at our church since day one. And I love that the prayer meeting is in the morning. Very first thing, start a prayer meeting. Um, I think uh, one of the things that you find is um, you don't learn how to ride a bike by reading books. You actually have to get on the bike. You don't learn how to depend on God merely by reading books. Even this good one. You actually have to get on. Faith requires that you actually have to depend on. And part of it is leaning on this book. But this book tells us how, how, how to lean on him in the rest of life. And one of the ways that we do that is by praying. And so just something as simple as setting a date and a time of when we as a church will come and gather um, is, is a great way to start. We uh, starting in May of 2014, we, God placed it on our heart to start that church in the West End and at least once per month uh, for the past, yeah, it'll, it'll be six years this May, we've met as a church to pray. We just had yeah, a prayer meeting last Wednesday. Start one, it reminds us that we lean on God together. Two, cement that prayer meeting. Uh, starting it is hard or is easy. Cementing it is hard, and here's what I mean. Um, something always comes up. Something will always come up. The reason why God gives us the ability to come to him in prayer whenever we want to is not so that we can build our lives and fit it in the margins. It's because we need prayer so much that God has to make it available to us at all times because if it wasn't, we wouldn't have all that we need to walk faithfully. So what we do is after we start that prayer meeting, we cement it and we will cancel or reschedule almost anything in the life of our church except for that prayer meeting. Because we want everybody to know just how important that it is. Permanence communicates importance. Three, uh, we talked about this some. Populate your prayer list with ordinary things. Uh, it reminds us not to take God's gifts for granted. The Lord's Prayer, right? Bread, forgiveness, protection. They're things that we're tempted to get for ourselves and keep for ourselves, but they're supposed to be things that remind us that God is faithful and he keeps his word 
They're meant to be these trail of breadcrumbs for faith-starved souls. Four, remember, uh, you are a historian and not a detective. You are John Watson. You are not Sherlock Holmes. You make a better historian than you do a detective. God works in mysterious ways, and you're not going to solve the mystery. So stop trying. Look backwards, right? The way that we um, continue to move forward in this life is you and I have to have the conviction to look backwards. Psalm 124, if it hadn't been for the Lord on our side, where would we be? And the psalmist paints this hypothetical, fictional picture of the future that says, if God hadn't been on our side, look at what would have gone on. But because he is, look at how he's protected us. Um, And here's what I mean by you make a better historian than you do a detective. Uh, You have to find the conviction and create the habits of being an ardent historian when it comes to recording the things that you pray for and the way that God answers your prayers because you and I have this nasty habit of forming our full theology of prayer based on how we think God reacted to our most recent one. And we've got to step back and get a holistic picture of how God works. The ability to move forward is going to come from our conviction to look backwards. Five, um, don't be discouraged by lack of attendance. Uh, yeah, we've done this for six years in the life of our church. I wrote a book on it, and it's still hard to get people from our church to come out to pray. Um, I think that's why Christ tells us where two or three are gathered, that he's there. Uh, I'm sure that's out of context and it doesn't have anything to do with it, but it's, it's an encouragement to my own soul um, that I think when it comes to the prayer gathering, we are reminded um, that it is the goodness of the one that we are praying to, not the amount of the people that are praying that moves God to answer those prayers. We judge the effectiveness of something not by the initial fruitfulness, but the eventual yield. That one acorn placed in the right place could produce trees over an entire continent over time. One seed grows up into a tree that produces more seeds and more seeds and more seeds. We we have no clue of the ripples of our prayers. We just have to say, all right, as many pebbles as want to gather, let's throw them into the pond and let's trust God with the results. Don't be discouraged by the lack of attendance. Um, And then six, take the show on the road. Uh, And what I mean by that is uh, you don't need a bunch to start a prayer meeting. Here's what you need. Uh, Brothers and sisters with burdens. Wherever you have those things, you have a prayer meeting, a prompt and impromptu meeting. If you can't get folks to come, make sure you take that show on the road. And what you find is that you can change the culture of a place. Like, you do not have to have a platform up front to change the culture of an entire place. There are 
ways behind the scenes and very grassroots. Um, when we first started Blueprint Church 10 years ago, um, at the top of 2010, P90X was really popular. So there was a group of us in the church that said, all right, we're going to do it. And we're going to, um, let me see, gambling's not the right word. Uh, we're going to yeah, put a little guilt-based incentive that would reward people who were more faithful than others. Um, so if you missed a day, you had to put five bucks in a pot, and then at the end of the time, the people that missed the least amount of days split that pot. Uh, well, I'm really cheap, so I didn't want to miss any days, and so there was a group of us that didn't miss days, and we split like a thousand bucks at the end. And we went through the whole thing, and what we find, uh, found out was there was a group of like eight folks that just got like got all the results that you saw on the infomercial. And then after that first round, what, what you had was you had this group of folks that like looked at them, and they said, what did y'all do? And it's like, well, we just did this. And then they got on, and you saw this thing start to trickle down just based off of people that had the results. And there's something about prayer that frees us from the anxiety, the anxious toil, the just being weighed down that lifts our thoughts, that fixes our concerns before it changes our circumstances, that people say, what is it? Like, why are you so light and free? Why does it seem like your bush is burning, but you're not consumed, right? Why and, 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 and it's like, yo, this is what the presence of God does to his people. That they can be thrown in the fire, but they're not consumed. They can be thrown in the den of lions, but they aren't ripped apart. They could be thrown in the grave, but they're not done for. So when people won't come, you take the show on the road. All right. In the three minutes I have left, I think I want to leave you with this one last truth, and that is this. How you pray more than just about anything reaffirms or undermines your belief in the resurrection. How you pray more than just about anything reaffirms or undermines your belief in the resurrection. Uh, a little parable from my marriage. I've been married a little more than 12 years, and I do not know where the measuring cups are in our house. I still don't know. Um, so there's times where I'll go to my wife and I'll say, yo, Chandra, um, where's the three-fourths cup? And she'll be like, we've been married 12 years, and you still don't know where they are. You know, uh, sometimes when she's like just got done with a quiet time, and she's and in her Bible, she'll say things like, have I been with you this long? And you still don't know where the uh, three-fourths cups are. Um, my favorite is this. She'll say, uh, John, what would you do if I weren't here? Uh, that, my friends, is a rhetorical question, right? Um, and they're not meant to be answered, but rhetorical questions are actually more fun to answer um, than they are to ask. And so she'll say, what would you do if I weren't here? And I'll think in my head, well, if you weren't here, then I'd actually have to look for it myself. And 
if history is an indicator of the future, chances are I'll work really hard and I won't find it. And I think to myself, like, why would I trouble myself when I can trouble you? Uh, I'm still married 12 years later, so I don't say all of that. But what I do say to her is, but sweetheart, you are here. Maybe I'd have to work through all that stuff if you weren't here. But, like, but you're literally right here, so you can just answer my question. Question for you. What would you do if you came to the prayer meeting in the morning and your leaders of this church were just gone? Not here anymore. A terrible accident just took them from this world. What would you do if you came and one of the leaders that you've had betrayed you? Took all the money and just up and left. Get on the phone with lawyers, would you plan, start to talk through next steps? What would you do in the life of the church if your church just started to explode and grow, and it was so hard for people to connect. You start to plan for how we can, you know, do groups and really get folks plugged in, assimilation, stuff like, like, like what, what would you do? What would you do if you get up and you go to work in the morning? Well, go to work the next time that you go to work and you start to talk about the Lord, and you start to find out that you could be thrown into jail for saying, anything that's remotely, historically Christian. Yeah, would you strategize? Would you plan? Like, what's the first thing that you would do? What's the first thing that you would do if you come into church this next week and there's just this huge ethnic tension that it, the fog is thick, you could cut it with a knife, and you just don't know what to do, and it feels like the church is going to rip apart. Would you plan a forum, racial sensitivity? Tra- like, what are the things that you would do? All right. That list that I gave you, hear this. It's not a random list. All I did was just update what went on in Acts chapter 1 through 6. Jesus died and was raised. He was gone. Judas betrayed them. He's gone. Acts 2, the church blows up. There's so many people. Acts 4, Peter and John are thrown in jail for talking about the gospel. Acts 6, we see what seems to be like this potential for ethnic tension where Greek those feel overlooked to the point that the whole church has to shut things down and get things squ- yeah, you're squared up. And do you know what takes place in every one of those instances? There's a prompt and impromptu prayer meeting. They stop and they pray in every one of those things. I would imagine the reason why they did that is because the problems came up And the very first thought that comes to their mind is, what should we do? Because Jesus isn't here. And I think they step back and think to themselves, well, if history is an indicator of the future, 
then we're going to work real hard, but we're just going to mess things up. But, but wait, why would we trouble ourselves when we can trouble him? He's here. He's actually here. We don't have to go and search for the cups on our own. We can just stop and get on our knees and pray because with him, it's really no trouble at all. The way that you pray has the ability to reaffirm or undermine your belief that Jesus actually got up from the grave. The fact that he got up from the grave is the greatest incentive for you and I to call on him at all times, with all our struggles, with all our problems, and leave him there. That we should know that, yep, yeah, if our prayers really reach God's ears, then you and I can fall asleep in his arms, safe and secure. Let's practice that right now. Heavenly Father, you know there's so much more on our plate than, than we can even get off of our lips. And so right now, Lord, our words are plain. We say, yeah, help us. Father, would you remind us of the great gift that we have in prayer? Uh, would it be something that we do together, Father? Would you change us? Would we corporately be dependent on you, Father? Would you put us in places that force us to depend on you so that like the Israelites, Father, uh, we could look back and say 40 years wasn't a punishment. 40 years was a great way for it to be cemented in our hearts that you provided bread for us daily, Father. Would you help us to have that kind of perspective as we look at our past? And we pray that that perspective would fuel us to be faithful in the future. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank John, just real quick. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, let's do it. Hey, so I tell you what we're going to do. Rather than take a break right now, we're going to jump straight into Q&A. We'll do it for about 20 minutes or so, maybe 25, and then we'll take our break at the end, okay? Meaning you'll just get out a little bit earlier, okay? Mm. How about that? Y'all like that? Yeah. It's just, we're just going to go straight into it. John, again, thanks again just for... Yeah. Just that, it was so helpful. So much of what John talked to us about tonight is available in uh, his book, Prayer, um, How Praying Together Shapes the Church. And again, you all get a copy. So um, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Thanks for registering. Um, let me get my stuff square real quick. So we've, we've had a couple of text-to-pastor text question, text questions. All right. So let's let's jump in. I haven't I haven't uh, really looked over these, so okay. I'm just gonna go for it. Come so on, could, go go. All right, John. Who in your life, family, seminary, ministry, has molded prayer in the most uh, profound way, or has mom. modeled? It my says mom. it says molded, but I think they meant modeled. My my mom, my mother. Um, uh, 
both my parents came over from Nigeria a little more than 40 years ago. Uh, and my mom was somebody who, there was five of us born within seven years of each other. Prior to the five of us, she had five miscarriages and was told that she would not have kids. And um, uh, when I was in the fifth grade, she finished up her doctorate of education while working full time, while raising five kids. And every day when she got home from work, um, she walked through the garage door and made a beeline to her room. And she would say hi, and, uh, but she would go right into her room and the door would close. And she'd come out half an hour later. Um, and on occasion, like sometimes she'd walk in and the door wouldn't close all the way. And I could, you know, peek in through the, the crack and I'd see her kneel down on the side of her bed and pray. So to this day, and I literally mean this, so um, I'm 35 years old right now. I left when I was 17 to go to college. And um, to this day, uh, I have never had a phone call with my mother that has not ended with her praying for me. Wow. In the off chance that the phone gets cut off, um, I know that whenever I get cell phone service back, there's going to be a voicemail with my mom calling back, praying. So never, like, and that's, that's awesome. not hyperbolic. There's not one time that I haven't been prayed for. So my mother. That's awesome. Yeah. How, uh, I mean, I didn't know your dad was a pastor. Yeah. Just till tonight. So <clears throat> my dad's a pastor. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm just curious, like, growing up in ministry, growing up the pastor's kid, then you become a pastor. There, there is, um, you know, there's inevitably this like, okay, I've been around this, I've seen this, like, you know, was that a, was that a big part of your church as a child or, uh, and obviously you're seeing it modeled in your mom, was, was prayerfulness in the church just something you've kind of always known in ministry or was it something you forgot about and had to be reminded of or what's, I mean, kind of give me that something journey. I always saw with my parents, so it's like, uh, yeah, like. Man, <coughs> Nigerians pray, yo. Like, they pray. So I remember, like, man, every New Year's, it would be like, yeah, I couldn't even go, like, hang out with my friends because it's like, nah, we got to. Praying in the year, man. Oh, we got to pray to bring in the New That's Year. Wise, yeah. yeah, and, like, not like, so I'm, like, more mellow and chill, but they're, like, like fiery, like light, like praying down thunder. So it's like, um, I think I like, I took it for granted and I was shaped by it. And then like all through college, it was a reflex. And then I got to seminary and I started to learn my theology and learn the Bible and store up this stuff here and just kind of yeah, lost my way. It's like, nah, like, I know what to do. I know what to say. I know how to counsel. I know where to point. And, um, and man, 10 years ago, when we moved here to plant the church. It was like, do, do, do. All right, we got to grind, grind, grind. And we just got to work, work, work. And it wasn't until, yeah, five years ago when my brother, like, died. And it was, that was the first, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that 
I prayed before then, but that kind of feels like a line of demarcation that I look and it was like, oh, that was the first time that I really felt something different than the like rote, you know, put yeah. together. It was like, it, it was breathing. It yeah, was yeah. So that's what like kind of shocked me back. And then I look back in my, or, or at first I'm like, why hasn't anybody taught me this or shaped me like this? And then I look back and I'm like, oh, yeah, my mom yeah, and my yeah, dad. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's helpful. Hey, 678-951-9041, 678-951-9041. Okay, so talk to us about, um, I mean, I mean, this is so, this is like what you're talking about with your mom. Like, there's, there's so many things that there's like, they're so obvious in the Bible, but then you like think about them and you're like, that is the most profound thing I ever think about. Like the prayer life of Jesus, yeah. like it's pretty obvious. We know about that. Yeah. We've talked about it our whole lives. But if you just think about, man, Jesus is praying to the Father, like yeah. what does that even mean, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so talk to me just about like the Trinity in prayer, how the Trinity kind of shapes our prayer life, how it informs prayer. Obviously, yeah. you talked about the prayer life of Jesus tonight, but kind of interact with that. Oh, that's one of the questions that was put, just kind of the, the, the lens of the Trinity affecting kind of who we are, and maybe even just kind of the ontology of the three-person Godhead, you know, yeah. uh, help us think through that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, man, I, I read a book at the end of last year. I, you know, it's a book that just kind of hung around for, for a long time. Everybody said that you should read it. Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. Have you read that? Okay. Yeah, has anybody read that book? Okay. Knowing God was my, like, Go to for a yeah. new Christian. You've got to have this. Yo, that's Jason. the new one? Jason. Oh my goodness. Yeah, just, man, I just read it and just the way that it talks about, you know, the work of God as Father and why we right, should yeah. view God as fundamentally a Father mm-hmm. and not created, yeah, loving and the work of the Spirit. How to, do you like compare it to communion with God? Owen. Oh, he, uh, so Is it's it similar uh, or different. Uh, he footnotes John Owen. So, yeah, it's basically the same that. Idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He footnotes. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah, yeah, yeah. research paper on John Owen, right? No, I love it. I <laughs> yeah. love it. Yeah. That was huge for me. Like, yeah. I was, to quote Packer, I was like a virtual Unitarian until <laughs> right. I read, like, yeah. Communion with God. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah. the experience of the Trinity, like, blew yeah. me away. So, I, I, so, I, so to that, I think. John 17, seeing how Jesus prays there and seeing it as the longest recorded prayer. Yeah. And it's just like a, that prayer is like, you know how like when somebody's eavesdropping and you know that they are and you talk in such a way like, oh, man. There's one thing I can't stand. It's eavesdroppers, right? right, right you right. Yeah, you yeah, talk yeah. in such a way that you really want them to yeah. grasp. That prayer is like that. And so just seeing like it, God praying to God. But and what, inviting us into God. Yes. That's amazing. And just what he wants from it. Just, yeah, I'm, I'm going to send it just. All right. I love it. I love it. What's the book again, just for the folks? Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves. All right. 
Um, this I'm I'm kind of jumping around here, Come but on. I'm kind of going with these. Now, let's All right. do it. Uh, organizing your prayer. You, do you know you know Frank Barker? You met Frank Barker, Briarwood Prez. Mm. Oh man, you got to meet Frank. He's like the most unimpressive guy. So he basically started. <laughs> there we go. He basically started the PCA. Oh. Anybody know Frank Barker? You know Frank? Like some of you like Birmingham people. All right. He like started the PCA. God used him in an amazing way. Like yeah. Trinity, like Tim Keller, for example, right. says like he's like his favorite person. Right. You know, like yeah. So like this, he's that guy. Like yeah. the guy that like Tim Keller's looking to is like okay, we probably. Yeah. But he's like you meet him and it's like this is like the most unimpressive person <laughs> I've ever met. But he is so prayerful. Yeah, he is like everything you're talking about. Like yeah. he just goes to the Lord in prayer. Yeah. Um, and and if you talk to him, he has all these like tricks. Like yeah. he's got all these prayer tools. So we don't have to talk about his prayer tools. But do you have any prayer tools? Like. How do you stay focused? How do you organize your prayer? How do you, yeah. how do you like not just, or do you just pray, maybe you just go with what you feel and like, what, what does that look like in your life? I write prayers down. So um, me and Mike started actually, uh, ESV has this yeah, yeah, journal thing and they had this big one for the Psalms. And so it was, you know, just once per day I'd wake up and praying through the Psalms. And so I just tried to say, all right, let me pray at the <coughs> start of the day, a prayer of praise for what I see. So I don't want to start my day asking God for things. Yeah. I just want to yeah, praise him for who he is. Um, and then one of the things that I do is um, as much as I can, I try to pray with other people. So I don't feel like that's cheating. I feel like it's a resource and a tool that God gives us, right? And so you constantly see in, like, so, you know, you go through the whole book of Acts and you, like, look at every instance where there's prayer and what you'll find is that the minority of those instances are people praying by themselves. So for me, it just helps me. I'm so kind of... ADD at times and undisciplined and unfocused that yeah, yeah. now I'm with yeah, you man yeah. I got this I, 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 just recently I started to pray this guy he's like always he like schedules prayer all the right. time yeah. but it's, it kind of it's like okay yeah like now I'll pray more yeah yeah I'm just gonna jump on and he you. like he just gets in we pray for five minutes he gets off like yeah. it's just like it's yeah. awesome so yeah. all right That's this is another one um, wait I liked this question um, okay desperation yeah. right. Your brother dies. You're planning a church. Some of your church is going through heartache. Okay, there's a sense of desperation. Mm -hmm. But obviously, like, you know, that's not always necessarily how you feel. Sometimes you feel really confident. Yeah. I think to some degree, like, anytime you start praying, you all of a sudden just get this sense of, oh, yeah, I really am pretty small. Yeah. How do you just talk about that? Is that just, is the key to being desperate before God, actually just praying, or is there, um, is there something else kind of to that? Maybe it's beginning with praise, or what? Yeah. I mean, what does that look yeah. like? So, so when I start off with praise, it just helps me to to remind myself, like how how big God is, right? So, mm -hmm. just like small things, like, man, God, like, you know. For as long as the world has been in existence, everybody has gotten up and the sun is where it should be. Like air is just 
where it should be. Like things that like, yeah, God's just been absolutely dependable. And I think of like, man, I, I, yo, yo, I didn't even take out all the trash this morning, mm-hmm. right? So it just, the disparity keeps me small. And if that's not enough, then when I start to go in um, yeah, and confess sin and ask for forgiveness, that's a point where you just really see like, man, not only did I owe God this great debt that he paid, but it's like, God, I'm continuing to, you know, throw logs on that fire. And it just, yeah, it just puts you in a place where you're just, yeah. What does confession look like in your prayer life? Just, is it kind of a search me, oh God, kind of thing? Or is it a, man, I, I just start praying and it comes to me? I mean, what, what does that look like yeah, for you? Yeah, both and. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I wake up with a greater sense of, of my sin. and mm-hmm. Yeah. What about silence and solitude? Like, that's uh, kind of a tough one, I think, for a lot of people. Like, sometimes people will say, man, I want to get more times of silence. And I'll just say, you should, like, probably start, like, doing your own yard work or something like that. Because it's hard to, like, it's, it's hard to, like, actually create space where you're not, your mind's not engaged, you yeah. know? So how do you, how important is, I guess, a discipline of silence or of, you know, of empty headedness or if, not empty headedness, but of still headedness, maybe, yeah. you know, I'm going to be filling my mind with the thoughts of God, but you know yeah. what I mean? N- yeah. Not filling it with the, my to-do list. Yeah. So talk to me about how do you protect that? How do you guard yeah. that? What does that look like? So I've always been an early riser. Um, uh, and then with, with our daughter, with stuff that I started to do outside, with friendships, with my wife, and being a pastor, I got to a place where I felt like incredibly like burnt out. And me and Mike talked on the way up and you know it's kinda I'm at that I'm I feel like I'm yeah, getting to that place right now that I just don't have you know, you know, time for myself. So uh November of twenty eighteen, I basically changed just how I how I live my life. So I know my daughter gets up at 7.30 and um, my wife is a night owl and I live in the neighborhood that I pastor and everybody like kind of like clings for my time. And so basically I, I, my, my days go from 4 a.m until about 8.45 or 9 p.m. So every morning, seven days per week, I'm up at 4 a.m. Um, because I know from 4 until 7.30, um, that time is my time. No interruptions. Nobody's going to get up and find me then, right? So I feel, like, safe. But it's like a, um, it makes it, or it's made it where it's like, a sacrifice because, um, yeah, like, yeah, it's 845 right now. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, it's my bedtime. And (laughs) (laughs) so there's so much of, like, life that I... You got to say no to. There's so much of life that I say no to and so much of life that I miss out on, but I think the life that I do have in those margins are so much better as a result of that. So I don't know how long it'll stay, but it's... uh, that's kind of one choice that I've made to try to find that. That's encouraging. Um, 
just talk to us about, um, um, there's a question about just praying in Jesus' name. Um, you know, I guess that's a great question. Are you, um, you know, maybe this is just more of a teaching moment, but yeah. just like, you know, I guess that's a meditating on the gospel and prayer. I mean, I loved how you kind of, you kind of left us each, uh, prayer can become kind of a self-righteous thing. Right. It can become kind of a gospel-less thing. Right. It can become kind of a, um, you know, a spiritual outside of Christianity thing. So keeping your prayers connected to Christ. Yeah. yeah talk to, I mean, I, you talked about that, but just yeah. talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. That, I, that as we pray in Jesus' name, we don't think of those words as like, you know, pretty please at yeah, the end, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. to get what we want. But it's a, um, it's a reminder that, all right, Lord, as I'm praying these things, I think I'm trying my best to pray them in accordance with the character of Christ, the one that we call on, as well as I'm, 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 I'm trying to remind myself that it's a, hey, uh, God answering these prayers is more about his goodness than it is about mine. And so as I'm praying, it's, all right, Lord, Jesus, these prayers right, yeah. are actually writing your coattails to get to, uh, yeah, God's throne. And I pray that the things that I pray for wouldn't be about my glory or my name or my fame, but that they would go forth to advance a picture of you in the world. And just an awareness that our, our only real access to God is it's in Christ. Christ. Amen. Like, and that's an amazing yeah. thing to think about. Yeah. Like, if I said, hey, man, you know, I got access to Bill Gates. If you want to, like, try to put in an application to the <laughs> foundation, to. you'd be like, oh. that's oh. just an illustration. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, gotcha. yeah, 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 gotcha. yeah. Yeah, but you'd be like, oh, man, like, thank you, Jason. I want yeah. access to him. Right. But, like, how much greater access do we have to God, yeah. the founder of the entire universe yeah. in Christ? And I do think that we, like, because God has made prayer so easy yeah. he's made it so possible for us in christ i think we could take that for granted oh yeah and and so yeah. just bathing even prayer is a gospel moment for yeah. us i mean every prayer should be a gospel yeah. moment so yeah. yeah and it gives us the uh we don't our prayers shouldn't fluctuate with our performance like yeah ah oh, man i did really good to uh, yeah, yeah, hey yeah. god's really gonna hear me uh oh man i did bad there's no way that god's gonna hear me it's uh, no, I think God hearing is largely Jesus is based making on sense Jesus of all of our prayer. performance, not ours. That's yeah. right. Yeah, Amen. that's right. Um, well, guys, once again, there's one other thing I want to do, but once again, can we just thank John? Thank you. Hey, give us, a, give us an update on, uh, I guess, just, you know, Cornerstone. How can we be praying for our sister church? And I just want yeah. you to know, you said you're great for us. We're so grateful for you guys. Oh, like, you, I just love that, like, we got this, like, team of little yeah. churches in our city that yeah. we're, you know, I hope the Lord is pleased. I think that he is. And, you know, obviously, I, I feel like we're all failing because Atlanta's so lost. But we're, <laughs> you know, but we're trying. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think that the Lord is at work. But um, give us an update. How can we be praying yeah. for our sister church? Cornerstone is growing, thriving. The Lord is providing uh Lots of inroads to impact the West End. So that's yeah, just where we live. Um, gentrification and affordable housing is, uh, is starting to make things 
challenging. There's lots of folks that have historically been in the West End that are being displaced. And so we're starting to learn how to work through that. And just from a church standpoint, again, you know, I share with Mike Blake and I talk some. Um, I think there's lots of things that I know how to do well as a pastor, as the church is continuing, uh, continuing to grow. There's certain administrative and organizational things that I'm just so inept at. And so we're just praying that God would send us the right person, people, or help to fix that. That right now it feels like um, uh, you know how it's like, you know, lifting weights is good so long as you do it with, with the right form. But if you squat with bad form, then it's going to put pressure on joints that shouldn't have that pressure. Um, and, and right now I, I feel like that as a church, there's, you know, we're squatting lots of weight with bad form and um, leaders and people and pastors um, are just, there's a lot of weight being placed in the wrong places and I know that it's largely due to organizational and administrative things. So just pray that God would give us wisdom and yeah, help. So, so I don't think it's a thing of pride, like, nah, we're fine. It's a, nah, somebody help us, right? Somebody, anybody, help, I don't, just tell us what to do. Yeah, so that's where we are. That's good. How about you, how about you just like yeah. your soul? I mean, that's yeah. obviously a weight you're carrying because you yeah. love your folks, but how about you, your family? I'm tired, man. I'm tired, yeah. And yeah, like, you know, pastoring carries a unique weight and so, you know, I'm, I'm 20, or I'm 35 right now. I've been pastoring in some capacity since I was 22. So we closed the church for renovations two weeks ago, and I was tell, 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 telling folks, you know, those last two weeks of the year, Christmas and New Year's, this is the first time in 12 years that I was literally, like, off the first time, and that just... So it's like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm just, like, tired. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, you start to just, fatigue is not a, um, fatigue is not a good friend or companion when it comes to wise decision making, just in terms of next steps, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what are you going to do? And so, um, yeah, just praying that God would do something too. Uh, alleviate the fatigue. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Well, guys, y'all want to just join me in uh, prayer for John, for our friends at Cornerstone. Hey, real quick, before we pray, Mike, I know you mentioned kind of the gentrification thing. Mike, uh, do you just want to give like a little like 30-second commercial as to some of the stuff you're working on and maybe a way that some folks could get involved? Um, this is Mike. He's John's friend.
If y'all are interested, obviously, you can talk to Mike also. Let's stand, and uh, I'm just going to pray for John real quick. <coughs> Father, um, I thank you so much for John. Um, we come before you, Lord, um, just aware um, of your weight and your glory and uh, your bigness. Um your eternality, uh, Lord, from the very foundation, before the foundation of the earth, you are, you exist, forever you exist. The brief little 70 or 80 years that we have is so small and so nothing. And so, Lord, um, just continue to quicken our hearts, turn our hearts toward you, toward your strength, toward your glory. Um, I pray even in this time when John's trying to faithfully care for, shepherd, pastor, his church, um, that as he has, he would just can continue to say yes to the right things and no to the right things, and that um, he would weigh out rightly, Lord, the things that are good and beautiful, um, and, uh, and, f and, and, and give himself to those things. Um, I pray, Father, you would just raise up leaders, you would raise up... Um, systems and organization and, and form, to use Judd's illustration, for the church um, so that um, the beauty of what you're doing there would, would not only just continue, but would continue in a, a, an even more helpful way. Um, so, Father, uh, just, just send uh, Cornerstone, just disciple makers and, um, and, and staff members and just the right team, Lord, that you desire um, to lead that church faithfully, Lord. Our city so, so desperately needs um, that ministry, and we just ask your great blessing on them. Also for John, Lord, in this just season of fatigue, I, I pray that you would just give him rest and peace in his heart, um, the weightiness of being a faithful husband, the weightiness of being a faithful father, the weightiness of being a faithful pastor, the weightiness of speaking, the weightiness of so many people that want his attention, Lord. You've obviously gifted him. It's obvious why people would be drawn to him. But Lord, um, I just pray, Father, that he would not be distracted um, by his own giftedness and by some of the things that you can use him for, but he would just, just find rest in the identity that he ultimately has as a son of God. He'd be able to rest. Um, that you'd You'd set boundaries around him. You'd give him uh, just a sense of peace in his heart. Um, that, that there would just be peace in his home. Uh, there would be peace in his church. Um, that you would just protect Cornerstone from any sense of division or infighting. Um, that they would, in light of the love that you've given them, pursue one another in all humility and in all gentleness, Lord. And, Father, in all patience. They would bear with one another in love, Lord. Um, 
And Father, I thank you that just for the partnership that we have um, with them and with Blueprint and with so many other gospel-centered, faithful churches in our city. We're so grateful, Lord, just to be in a city where uh, there are many faithful gospel lights, Lord, but we need more. And we do just continue to pray that um, that the hearts of so many people around us right now, the thousand people around right now that are, that are given toward success or given toward their identity or given toward entertainment or given toward whatever, that all of those things ultimately will fail them, Lord, that you would, um, for the sake of your own glory, turn their hearts toward you. And so, Lord, um, we ask that you would do this, Lord, and we ask that you would do this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. You guys have a great night.